when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, it is a privilege to open up your word this morning um, and to study it. Um, Lord, we give thanks for it. And we pray that uh, as we engage with this text this morning, Lord, would you open our eyes to the wonderful glory of your son, Jesus, the way in which he resisted temptation, Lord, the way in which he was faithful. And Lord, would that just be a huge encouragement Would that stir our hearts to desire to follow him? Lord, we give thanks this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a parent, um, it's often said that the preschool sort of primary years uh, for parents are the age of anger and the teenage years are the age of anxiety. Um, now, children are an absolute wonderful gift from God, but I've got uh, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old. And that sort of statement, that idea of an age of anger, can resonate with me from time to time. Just, I want to paint a picture of, you know, probably my most typical mornings. I'll uh, wake up in the morning, and I'll, I'll go to the kettle, and I'll boil the water, and I'll start making my V60 pour-over filter coffee. And I'll get my rolled oats out and my banana and give a little dusting of cinnamon. And I'll get my coffee and I'll get my rolled oats and I'll sit down with my black leather Bible, ESV version. (laughs) And I'm just in my happy place. This is just a sweet spot right now, just sipping this beautiful filter coffee, banana and rolled oats. How good is it? And then there is a scream. Not one of those screams that you can just ignore. You know, I'll just ignore that one and maybe my wife will tend to it. (laughs) It's one of those screams that you're like, if I don't go and do something now, someone's going to (laughs) die. So you get up and you go down to the children's bedroom and there's your three-year-old doing some sort of Greco-Roman wrestling maneuver on your five-year-old and you're just like, what is going on here? And in that moment, it presents a temptation. 
It presents a temptation to respond in anger instead of grace. And the truth is that probably more often than not, my response is anger. Um, and I really, uh, I guess I really resonate with the words of Paul in Romans chapter 7. It kind of captures this uh, situation. He says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. You know, I love my children, but at some point or another, I find myself angry. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. The point is that my kids, you know, and as innocent as they are, as beautiful as they are, they, they just present the temptation. And sin is actually reflected in my response in that situation. Anger instead of grace. Perhaps maybe for you, you don't actually have kids and so that doesn't really resonate with you. But perhaps maybe this does. You're sort of joyfully humming along as you're driving the car to you know your favorite sort of worship music. Just like you and the Lord, this is just a sweet time. And then someone just cuts in front of you. And when they cut in front of you, your blood begins to boil. And you forget whatever song is on the radio or whatever song that was being played right there, and you accelerate quite rapidly up behind them. Because you want them to know how frustrated you are with their irrational driving. And so you follow them, you follow them, and then it starts, you notice the lights go red. You go, this is your chance. So you move into the lane next to them. And then as it stops at the red line, you take that wonderful opportunity. <laughs> and you just give them that look. Maybe that resonates with you. The point is that someone else's actions on the road present a temptation and sin is reflected in how you respond in that situation. Perhaps it's not sinful anger. Maybe you've started the day with just like, oh, it's a beautiful winter's day, the sun's out. Amazing. And you're just sitting there on the couch and you start to flick through realestate.com. Beautifully manicured, renovated, overly priced homes. (laughs) And you find yourselves within seconds shifting from a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving to a sense of discontentment and envy at what others have. The device in your hand presents a temptation and sin is reflected in how you respond in that moment. Perhaps it's conversation with some friends and the opportunity presents to share some information about someone else or at someone else's expense, to gossip. This conversation with friends presents a temptation and sin is reflected in how you choose to respond in that moment. It's tax time. As you start to work through your tax return, there's an opportunity for you to perhaps claim more than you deserve. 
your tax return presents a temptation and sin is reflected in how you respond. John Owen sort of describes this idea of temptation really helpfully. He says, Temptations do not put anything into a man which is not already there. The truth is, is that we are all sinful people at heart. Temptations pull out of us what's already deeply entrenched in our hearts. And I guess as we consider this truth, perhaps maybe the questions that you might consider are, like, do you ever feel kind of bound by that? It's sort of a struggle that you can never be freed from. Does Paul's words that I read in Romans 7 resonate with you? Do you find yourselves doing things that you don't want to do and not doing the things that you do want to do, that you know are right before God? There's one hope for this message, and it's this. As we study the temptation of Jesus, my hope is that we will see that because Christ is faithful, or because of Christ's faithfulness, we can be faithful. To elaborate a little bit more on that, in Christ, we are free to fight sin and temptation and to live faithfully for him. Because he was faithful. I'll say that again. In Christ, we are free to fight sin and temptation and to live faithfully for him because he was faithful. Three points to help us understand that. The first one being our faithlessness. The second, his faithfulness. And then the third, following the faithful one. We'll start with point one, our faithlessness. To help sort of set the scene of this temptation of Jesus that we read in chapter four, Luke actually begins the story by pointing us back to what actually has just happened. If you look at verse one, he starts with, and Jesus. The and reminds us that there is a direct link between what has happened and what is about to take place in this particular story. If you think back to last week, Luke is following on from the genealogy of Jesus, and in particular, Jesus' baptism. And we read in Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came and said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Last week, Dave helped us to see that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He is the beloved Son of God, God incarnate, who has come into this world for our sake. And so as we study this text today, we need to remember that it is tied intimately with the the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And with that in mind, it's helpful to kind of I guess, imagine that people would have been asking, given what we've just studied in chapter 3, well, what sort of a son of God is Jesus going to be? What sort of a son of God is he going to be? Jesus was the awaited Messiah, the chosen one, here to rescue God's people. If Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah, well, what kind of a Messiah is he going to be? Would he use his power to establish a mighty empire that would rule the world? 
Would he use his power to display his glory in the working of spectacular miracles? Would he use his power for himself? These are the questions that would have been going on. And it's with these sorts of questions that Luke pens this account of Jesus' temptation. If we remember back to Luke chapter 1, Luke actually, he actually writes to Theophilus with the purpose of helping Theophilus trust and understand who who Jesus is. Verse 3 of chapter 1. And it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He writes this so that they might have certainty that this is the Son of God. And so I guess the question is, well, what does this have to do with our faithlessness, if this is the point that we're looking at? Well, let's read on in chapter uh, in verses 1 and 2 of the text. We read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, just this week, as I pulled out of my uh, my street, uh, I noticed the red and blue flashing lights going off just up the road. And as I drove closer, it just so happened to be um, that a certain uh, member of this church was, uh, in fact, actually just pulling over someone in our local community. <laughs> and uh, And I drove by... And I guess the question, uh, or the point I'm trying to make here is that what, what do we do when we notice those red and blue flashing lights? We slow down and we take a look, don't we? Turns out that, um, in fact, uh, this person that had been pulled over had done an illegal U-turn over double lines. The convenience of a UE presented a temptation for that person and sin was reflected in how they chose to respond. And they got caught in this particular instance. But the point I'm trying to make is that when we see those blue and red flashing lights, we tend to slow down and take a look. And I I think that these verses 1 and 2, as Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days, is a moment where the red and the blue lights are going off. We want to slow down and take a look at them for a moment. There is a clear parallel here between the testing of Jesus being led into the wilderness for 40 days and Israel's own testing in the wilderness for 40 years. If we think back, for those that are familiar with it, and we remember the Exodus story, Israel, after 400 years of slavery, rescued and drawn out of Egypt by God in a wonderful display of his power and provision, brought through the Red Sea as they walked on dry ground, Pharaoh's army behind, washed away. To them, within days of their freedom, they begin to mumble and complain. Grumbling in the wilderness, wishing that they were back in Egypt, failing to trust God's provision of food and water, turning to idol worship, creating a golden calf in which they began to worship. Many of us will be familiar with this story of Israel's unfaithfulness. But the, tr- the truth is, is that a thousand years on, we're probably not much different. If we were in their circumstance, we would probably find ourselves 
grumbling and complaining out in the wilderness, failing to trust God despite him time and time again showing his power and provision. Tempted to grumble against God, perhaps maybe we can struggle to be discontent in our circumstances, frustrated with life's challenges and yet fail to recognize the many good things that he gives us. Perhaps we're tempted to not trust God uh, by ruminating and thinking about a situation or something that's causing us a lot of stress rather than entrusting him with that thought and giving it over to him. Perhaps we're tempted by idolatry, turning a good thing into a God thing in the way that we might overindulge our time and our energy and our resources into things that we think are going to give us lasting joy and satisfaction. Perhaps we're tempted to forget God's provision, prayerfully asking, but maybe neglecting to actually give thanks for the many ways in which he answers our prayers. Just as Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted, we must remember not only Israel's faithlessness in the wilderness, but the fact that we also are faithless people. Interestingly, as I saw the flashing lights, um, I thought to myself as I drove off, yes, good on you, mate, because I'm obviously good friends with this certain police officer in our congregation. I said, good on you, mate, getting the bad guys. And then I drove a little bit further and then I thought, you know what, I would totally do that. That could have easily been me and that would have been really awkward if my, you know, if he had to pull me over. I'm like, oh, sorry, mate, you know. So the truth is, is that I'm, I'm no different from that person that was pulled over. And so as we slow down and notice the flashing lights at this point in this text, we can see the faithlessness of Israel and we must not neglect the fact that we are faithless also. We don't want to sit there though. We don't want to sit in that moment of faithlessness and, re- and, and, and just stay there. Just as God's faithfulness is cr- contrasted time and time again to Israel's unfaithfulness throughout the Old Testament, Christ's faithfulness in contrast to our, our faithlessness is on full display today. And this text actually offers a message of hope, uh, the truth being that because Christ was faithful in this moment and throughout his ministry and, and right up until his death on the cross, we can be faithful also. And so that brings us to our second point where we're going to start to really dig into this text and really sort of start to tease out some of these different temptations that Jesus experiences. Point two, his faithfulness. And we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 12. So having been led by the Spirit into the wilderness, Jesus spends 40 days being tempted by the devil, by Satan. At the end of 40 days of testing, the devil presents Jesus with three temptations. So he's actually already spent 40 days of temptation. And it's it's culminating in these three temptations that, that the devil uses to try and thwart, thwart God's plans. You can imagine the devil at this point after 40 days Jesus without food, the devil's sitting there just rubbing his hands going, this is going to be good. I can't wait. Eager to subvert God's plan for human redemption by causing Jesus to fall into sin and therefore disqualify Jesus as the sinless saviour. In verses 3 and 4, we read, The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, 
Command this stone to become bread. The devil here is tempting Jesus to prove his sonship in the turning of stone into bread. Notice how crafty the devil is. We've got to think for a moment. The devil is playing on Jesus' humanly weakness in this moment. Jesus, fully God and fully man, is here and he has not eaten for 40 days. Now, I don't know if you guys have tried the, the fasting that, I mean, Dave taught on it probably maybe 18 months ago as a church. Uh, we, we, we did the Friday fast for, for a period of time and perhaps maybe you've continued that on. And my hope is that it's been a real blessing for you in terms of in, in, encountering and communing with God. But for me, you know, it's a difficult thing to go without a meal, let alone a few meals throughout the day. And so I was quite generous to myself. I just said, I'll just skip breakfast today. That'll be my uh, Friday fast. Um, and so I found it really hard. I found it very hard. Jesus has spent 40 days without food. And the devil here is trying to tempt him. But Jesus responds with these words. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. 40 days of fasting. Isn't he impressive? It's like, He's got the power to change stone into bread in a moment. And he says, I trust in God alone. He sustains me. I can barely go without breakfast. 40 days. In this moment, he points to the same situation when he references, when he says, man shall not not live on bread alone. He points to the same situation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So we're going to read that now. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read in verses 2 and 3. And and he's speaking of Israel in the wilderness in Deuteronomy. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God, who was faithful, humbled the Israelites in their unfaithfulness by letting them hunger and then feeding them. To teach them that simply having their physical needs met was not enough. They needed not just bread, they needed God himself. This is another flashing lights moment. Israel, unfaithful. Jesus referencing or taking our our minds back to that. Israel being unfaithful, wandering in the wilderness, complaining about their hunger. And Jesus, on the other hand, faithful. 40 days without food, yet trusting in God's provision. Resisting temptation. It's a kind of snapshot or a Polaroid picture moment of the Son of God. Fully God, fully man, tempted by the devil to serve his own needs. And yet committed and dedicated to God's plan and purpose for his life. And we can take encouragement from that. Jesus Jesus pursues God's mission and not his own mission. And so the devil, undoubtedly frustrated with Jesus' commitment and resolve to live out God's purposes, tries again. Five, five through eight. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. One question that perhaps pops into your mind as you read this is that does does the devil actually have this authority to give Jesus? In one sense, this is true because Jesus actually himself describes the devil in John 14.30 as the ruler of this world. But the comfort is that in the same breath as he describes the devil in that way, he says that the devil has no claim on him. For although the devil's influence is very present in this world, the devil's power is not equal to God and as we, th- we see throughout scripture, is ultimately underneath, under God. The temptation was all about offering Jesus the opportunity to seize power now. For himself. Apart from God's promises and plans. Trying to entice Jesus with self-seeking glory. He offers a kingdom and reign mightier than the Romans. Which, if you think about Jesus for a moment and what he has come to do, it's very tempting, isn't it? Power and glory and wealth and prosperity on offer for Jesus. And yet Jesus, again, has to resist temptation because he has resolved to live out God's plans and purposes for him. To ultimately go to the cross for the sake of humanity. Once again, Jesus responds with scripture saying, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Here Jesus emphasizes the worship of God alone. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. But interestingly, there's a slight variation from what he's quoting from Deuteronomy. Substituting the word fear, and instead saying, You shall worship the Lord. And then adding the word only to emphasize his uncompromising commitment to worship God alone. He's not here for his own worship. He's not here to worship Satan as Satan so um, craftily tries to tempt. I am here to worship God alone. Jesus remains committed to serving God alone. While the reference to Deuteronomy casts our minds back to Israel's failure to do that. For they created for themselves an idol to worship. Despite God showing his power and his provision, they create an idol in the form of a golden calf to worship instead. Christ's faithfulness as the beloved son of God is yet again on display in this moment. And finally, the devil makes one final attempt to land a blow on Jesus. In verses 9 through 12 we read, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your your foot against the stone. Jesus is taken to the highest point in the temple, some sort of 40 to 45 meters above the ground. And Satan says, prove it. 
Prove you are the son of God. Throw yourself off. Let's see the power of God to save you. He quotes, this is Satan, Satan quotes Psalm 91 verse 11. But he does it in a kind of a half-truth. He kind of twists scripture to suit his own purposes. And Jesus rejects this temptation by again appealing to the whole truth of scripture. And he references Deuteronomy 6 verses 16. And Jesus answers him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Isn't it interesting that in all three temptations, Jesus, Jesus references Deuteronomy. And he actually, in, he specifically references chapters Deuteronomy, uh, chapters 6 through 8 of Deuteronomy. Which as, if you flick back over it, what it portrays is the ongoing test and failure of Israel in the wilderness. Here is Jesus resisting temptation and then casting our minds back to the failure of the Israelites in the wilderness. Another flashing lights moment as we consider Christ's faithfulness and our faithlessness. I think what's actually quite amazing is that in this particular situation, the devil is trying to spoil God's plans. He's trying to thwart God's plans. He's trying to undermine God's purposes for Jesus as the Son of God. But because of who Christ is, because of the way that Christ responds to these temptations, it actually only affirms and strengthens Jesus' sonship. And that can be a huge encouragement to us. Because Jesus was faithful in overcoming temptation, he was able to then go on and live out God's mission for him to be the sinless saviour and die on the cross for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5 verses, uh, verse 21 we read, For our sake he made him sin. Sorry, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As, as followers of Jesus, we are what theologians called or describe justified. And Dave mentioned that earlier um, as he was leading through worship. Justified. Despite our sin, we have been declared right before God because of the perfect substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. If he did not resist temptation, if he fell into sin, he could not do that. But because Christ resisted temptation and gave himself at the cross, we are, by trusting in him, justified. Not because of our own efforts, but through faith in him. Not by our own works, so that we cannot boast. And yet the truth is, in this moment, there's something that's applicable for us. As followers of Jesus, despite being right before God, the reality is, as I said at the start, we're sinful people. There exists an ongoing work of God and us in resisting temptation and putting to death sin in our lives. What theologians call the process of sanctification. A lifelong process of trust and repentance 
and following Christ and seeking to live in obedience to him. I guess, why does that matter? Why is it important that we understand the fact that we are justified? That when God looks upon us, he sees Christ. And yet, we still live in sin and are called to put to death sin in our life. Why is that important? There's a danger if we misunderstand these truths because we're at risk of either overemphasizing justification and living in the grace of God and continue on sinning carelessly. Not a worry in the world about the sin that goes on in our lives. Living, in, uh, in, I guess, in rejection of God's call on our lives. Or, as sinners, we can be so easily tempted to smuggle our works into our faith. We can emphasize sanctification where we work hard to gain our right righteousness with God. Losing sight of the righteousness that we have received because Christ was faithful. And so we must remember in light of our justification, we pursue sanctification, not because it makes us right before God, but because it is a right response in light of the grace that we have received through Christ. And what's even more encouraging for us as followers of Jesus is that in this fight against temptation, Jesus actually offers us a great example. And I think, and that brings us to uh, point three. And I think one of the things that has really affected me as I've studied this text this week is the example of Christ in this moment. Hebrews chapter five, verse 14, we read, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. He can empathize with our struggle, and yet he offers us hope. In our fight against sin, he actually offers us three ways as an example to resist temptation. And these three ways are through prayer, walking in step with the Spirit, and reading Scripture. As we study the text, we see Jesus actually being led by the Spirit and spending 40 days in prayer and fasting throughout this period of temptation. Jesus, in a time of temptation, recognizes his need to seek the Lord through prayer and fasting to help him in resisting temptation. Crying out to the Father, calling out and and seeking him prayerfully meditating on him as a way to resist temptation. The second thing is that we see that Jesus is actually led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He doesn't just go there. He isn't taken by the... He's led by the Spirit. Jesus is following the leading of the Spirit in this moment. Galatians 5.22 is such a helpful... Um, picture of what it is to walk in step with the Spirit. Because when you are led by the Spirit, you produce the fruits of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. When we walk in step with the Spirit, we can be faithful. 
just as Jesus was faithful in this moment of temptation. And so Jesus gives us a wonderful example of seeking the Spirit in the midst of temptation, in that fight against sin. And finally, and I think probably most powerfully for me as I've studied, is that Jesus, the Son of God, uses Scripture to resist temptation. It's like a, like he just plays a straight back, straight back to Satan. I think it's powerful the way in which he, one, knows scripture and uses it to resist temptation. And I think there's something to be said here about memorization of scripture. Jesus didn't have a parchment there to refer to, you know, as he, as he addressed Satan's temptations. He knew it and he was able to recite it. And I think that's actually quite a powerful example and something that I've been convicted of. Memorization is not a strength of mine at all. And yet as I studied this, I can see the power of knowing Scripture and reciting Scripture in the midst of temptation. One of the... Um, one of the most encouraging things I think I've seen in this text, as I said, is just the way in which Jesus has modelled this uh, this resisting uh, against temptation. And as I said at the start, um, there is often a temptation to be angry with my children. And I've actually seen some fruit uh, in light of, of pursuing this this particular model. Um, Rather than, you know, getting up in the morning and making my coffee and my breakfast and sitting down to study God's word and then having the, uh, the fight go on and then having to go and deal with it. I've actually made the conscious decision to get up before the kids get up in recent weeks and to start my day reading and praying so that when the kids then get up, my heart is in much better position to resist the temptation that can come from time to time. I've seen the fruit of the Spirit in me as I've sought to study God's Word and pray. It doesn't take the temptation away, but when the temptation presents itself, I'm full of the Spirit, I'm full of God's Word, and I can be faithful in those moments. It's been a wonderful encouragement to me as I've seen Jesus' example and then also sought to apply it in my own life. I guess I just wanted to appoint, I just want to address those perhaps in the room that this is a bit foreign to them. Maybe they're not a follower of Christ. Perhaps it's raising some questions for you. Perhaps maybe the idea of temptation resonates with you but you're not really kind of understanding, well, how is it that Jesus frees us from this? How is Jesus' faithfulness helping us to be faithful? Can I encourage you that as we continue to study the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, would you engage with the person and the story and the good news of Jesus? Because I think in it you will see that he truly is the son of God and he has the power to save us from our sins. I would encourage you to continue to join us each week as we study and engage with them. To close, I mentioned at the start that in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, in the midst of his angst and frustration in his fight with sin, 
he kind of expresses this feeling of, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And I don't do the things that I do want to do. And he actually concludes in verse 24 and 25a, he says, what a wretched man I am, as he weighs up his sinful heart. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever temptations are pressing on your heart at the moment, remember because Christ is faithful, we can be faithful in following his example. So my encouragement to you, church, is that you would walk by the Spirit, be steadfast in prayer, and continue to meditate and memorize his word, all the while giving thanks to God, who will deliver you from sin and temptation through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we marvel at the example of your Son. In the midst of his humanity, his hunger, his temptation to take the glory for himself, Lord. He resisted for our sake. He was faithful in this moment, as we studied today, and throughout his ministry, right up to giving himself at the cross, so that we might experience relationship with you, Lord. And we, we just marvel at that. We thank you, Lord. And Lord, we ask that in light of that truth, we would just rest in the sure, justified relationship that we have with you. And yet, Lord, would it be an encouragement to us to continue to fight against sin and temptation in our own lives out of response of thanksgiving and grace for all that you've given us. Lord, would we seek to live by the example of your Son in pursuing your Spirit, Lord? Would we seek to live by the example of your Son in prayer? And finally, in the memorization and the study of Scripture, Lord. These are wonderful gifts that you have given us to help us in this fight. And so, Lord, we give thanks to you for Christ and his faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.